This is Pete Moore. I want to tell you about a company that is going to change the entire recruiting in the Halo sector. The company's called GamePlan. We are GamePlan.com. What they do is they connect employer brands with D1, D2, D3 athletes across the country. They power the software that allows these employers to get in front of tens of thousands of athletes. If you watch the NCAA tournament, the hustle, grit, preparation, determination, and absolute desire to win embodies every athlete out there. Now you're gonna be able to put your brand in front of those athletes, start to get them to understand after their college career, they can get into the halo sector, go work at a studio, a health club, fitness equipment company, supplements, anything related to this industry, they can now parlay those skills and bring it into the sports and fitness industry that we are going to have the best athletes become the best employees and create the best companies. And that is the future of Halo. One, two, three, Halo. We are gameplan.com. Check it out. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I am taping from the TWA Hotel at JFK. I encourage everyone to go here. It's a landmark icon, and you'll know every word to every song. And going from TWA, which was the old school, most authoritative airline in the world, which landmarked their own building, we are going to Sesame Order, where Josh Morgan is going to turn that same landmark into better for you foods, beverages, lifestyle choices at the fingertips of every consumer. So Josh, with that big objective, please tell <laughs> us your background and how you're going to get there. How y'all doing? Thanks so much for, uh, for having me. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a career restaurant guy, you know, I've been in hospitality almost my whole professional life, fell in love, um, early in my career with the hospitality industry and worked for some really great companies like Hillstone, formerly known as Houston's restaurant group, the nomad, and uh, for the past 10 years, I've been a partner at a company called Orify Brands based here in Manhattan. And we've been building and incubating great fast casual brands um, and, you know, with the hopes of, of scaling them. And it's a fun industry. Um, you know, I think once you're in the, the restaurant space, it's probably like fitness and, you know, it just becomes in your, it's in your blood. You know, it's, right. it's, it's about, you know, connecting with, um, with consumers and creating these amazing experiences that, that in some cases last a lifetime. So. So that's my, you know, um, kind of history and Sesame came about in a, you know, post COVID world because, you know, we started to just think about, you know, how fundamentally challenging being in the restaurant business is. And even when times are good, it's hard, but in the face of things like COVID, um, we just kind of came to the realization that, you know, we needed to make some changes. Um, so Sesame was kind of a response to the challenges that we've had as restaurant operators fighting against the aggregators and Silicon Valley and big tech kind of monopolizing our off-premise business. And post-COVID, you know, our off-premise went from, you know, sub 10% of our total sales to 60, 70, 80%. And when you're paying 30% commissions, you know, which effectively, when you think about it, if you're paying 30% commission on 80% of your sales, it's effectively like you're you have an equity partner, except right. they didn't invest in it. You know, well, that's like, like the Apple store and people say, Oh, the Apple stores with this. I'm like, they own 30% of the revenue, not really? the equity. They own the off the top, right? Totally. It's of like thousands of companies. So it's like it's Kevin, it reminds line. me of, of Kevin O'Leary on shark tank. He's, he's always trying to take top line, you know, right, right. on everything, but, but it's, it's, it's problematic. And, and post COVID it became 
it was almost like a wake up call. Like, no, 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 this, we didn't like it before, you know, and we tried to, you know, fight back a little bit, but post COVID it's like, no, 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 we got to like really band together and, and try to create a more sustainable option. Can we just and talk about that, that business for a second? Because not only are they taking 30% from you, but there's more and more line items below the line. And also I think a lot of the restaurants now are, are, are modifying their prices. So it's, it's higher price to, to compensate. Exactly. For that 30%, right? Yeah, no, look, there's all sorts of things. I mean, first of all, there's a history of predatory practices that these aggregators have taken to kind of get to where they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty gross. You know, some of the things like, for instance, you know, putting up virtual phone numbers um, in Google search that would intercept consumers trying to find, you know, one of our brands and, you know, a consumer thinks they're calling the restaurant, but in fact, it's this like virtual number. They've been sued by, you know, various states and municipalities. And so there's some ugly stuff at the heart of it. Um, not to suggest that all of them, you know, are, are, are using constant predatory practices, but there's a history of it, which led to a lot of contentiousness. But, but to your point, Pete, yeah, there's transaction fees. There's, there's this idea of, you know, they kind of sold us on, Hey, we're going to bring you all new customers. But then when you start looking into it, you realize they're actually taking all of your existing in-house customers, which are your big profit centers, right? Like our customers that come into our restaurant, like that's where we make our money. And when they, they, when, when they start getting uh, cannibalized, you know, it's devastating. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And, and the other point you mentioned, you're right. Like because of these high commissions for so long, that's 30% restaurants started to pass those through to the consumer in the form of menu price premiums. Um, so a lot of times consumers are paying nowadays, 20%, 25% menu premiums just because they're using you know, DoorDash or Grubhub. Right. And it's because the restaurants are just passing it through. So it's very, it ends up being very costly to both the restaurant and the consumer. So, so when you looked at Sesame, you know, you were focused on, on, on the healthy lifestyle and, and focused on basically trying to, you know, rejigger how people think about, you know, what their choices are up front uh, on the top. You know, obviously I, you know, I use a DoorDash and it has like a healthy icon, you know, but there's really not much of like a decision tree or much data behind that. So what were the frustrations that you were solving? And, you know, with, with data, you know, with your own, uh, you know, people in the market knowing like what's healthy, what's not for you, you know, they don't put calorie counts on a lot of things. Yeah. Um, you know, also, you know, there's serving sizes, which is another thing that Dave Gannel and I are going to go after the serving size community. Cause I think that's all ridiculous that, you know, you got to have a multiplication table on the grams of sugar that you put I know. in your well, body. It's so confusing. Why does it have to be so confusing? Um, yeah, I mean, so at, you know, at the heart of our core value system, I think has always been this notion of just, just total, um, transparency, transparency around cost and pricing and always being, you know, upfront and honest with, you know, where the data is going and who gets access to the data, who's getting paid on these various line items when you, when you, you know, transact on e-commerce that can be so confusing to the consumer. And also, you know, transparency that extends to, you know, the types of food and, you know, how healthy it is and, um, you know, things like calorie counts. And, and I believe that as a restaurateur, you know, we always, it's always in our best interest to be, you know, open and honest with, um, with our, with our guests, because that kind of, you know, generates, you know, long-term brand affinity and trust and ultimately loyalty, which is what we all want. So, you know, so we've, we've kind of tackled that at, at the first layer of, you know, open data, um, open data and open access. So when a consumer orders on Sesame, what typically happens in the current version is DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats, they, they hoard that data and they do not give it to the to the restaurants, right? So okay. Sesame's approach is complete transparency. When a consumer orders on Sesame, it's not our data. We have access to it, but it's an open data model so that those same restaurants 
can can learn more about their customer. And this is, you know, you mentioned data because it honestly, it's it always boils down to data and using that to make you know business decisions. And you know, restaurants need to understand like who's ordering, you know, what they're ordering, what type of menu items, where, um, you know, where those menu items are being delivered to, so that they can, you know, better attract the right consumer segment. You know, so one of our brands, Little Beat and Little Beat Table, is a gluten free, um, you know, health health food uh, concept. And we were one of the first in the space. Um, this was like 2013, 2014, when kind of the idea of gluten-free as like a scalable concept really didn't exist. And, you know, we've really amassed a, 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 an amazingly loyal audience and people who have all sorts of dietary restrictions and aversions, and they come to us because they know they can trust us. So, so, you know, it extends into that, that transparency about items and, you know, understanding our customers, knowing who they are and being able to you know, offset Sesame to help Little Beat and the brand target um, those those people. Gotcha. So when you take a look at, you, we spend a lot of time in the health club industry, which are sitting on unbelievable amounts of data. If you can slice it and dice it correctly and actually have some conclusions and then take actions based on those conclusions. But there was never, you know, a graphical way that it was done to actually tell you like, okay, this is what this means. And this is what you should do about it. So there's a company called Fitness BI, a business intelligence that you know, basically took all the data out of one of the largest billing companies and put it into, you know, bar charts and, and graphs and then turn yeah. it into the ability to gamify, you know, different sales teams against each other, different clubs against each other, and actually turn, turn the data into a useful tool. So, so the useful data in the health club industry is now helping these, these owners actually make decisions where before they were just kind of looking at it in a Monday morning meeting say like, okay, that's great. You know, but there was no action exactly. done after that. So, you know, you've got a lot of restaurants that are sole proprietorships or they're yep. small companies. Um, they probably don't have a data scientist um, right. on their staff. Yeah. Right? They right. probably, yeah. So, so as you deliver this data to these restaurants, are you also basically telling them, Look, this is how are you going to optimize your business and how I'm going to help you do that? Are you almost like a value added, um, you know, resource for them? Or how do you think yeah, about no, no, no. That? that? I mean, that's the intent, you know, I mean, we're still startup, right? So we, we're just kind of getting going and, and learning a lot. But yes, I mean, under those the kind of auspices of, of total transparency, you know, data is important. But for most independent mom and pop and you know operators, like they don't have the sophistication required to take a lot of data and, and interpret it. So, so Sesame, the intention of Sesame was always to provide a little bit of what maybe Fitness BI can provide, you know, the more data we get that we can kind of, you know, generate it um, in ways that that restaurateurs can make sense of all, all within like a backend dashboard. Um, and, you know, the where we see it going is, not just you know being able to provide the data in a way that that helps you know independent restaurateurs understand, but to be transparent about what's happening across the industry. And again, to to compare this to what how it works now, right? Like Grubhub, uh, Uber, they they all have crazy amounts of data, but they're very restrictive with it. They they don't they don't give access to like, hey, what's the best selling menu item in your zip code right now? You know, because that's kind of that's information that. That might be helpful to know like what's just what trends are and like how things are moving. Yeah. Well, in, in the grocery, in the supermarket grocery industry, people are getting those reports off of the uh, receipts that are being aggregated uh, of what's selling, what your know, market share by, by brand, you know, by size, by category. I'll think yep. of the name of it uh, there. So you're basically saying that the suppliers 
don't have any data of what's going on after that that meal leaves their their restaurant. Exactly. Well, they have they have some data on just what's happening in their four walls or in their limited ecosystem. But to right. get data about what's happening across the whole macro environment, you know, like, um, you know, which which fast casual concepts are doing, you know, certain volumes, like which menu items are selling the best, which uh-huh. menu items might be selling the best in certain areas. Um, that That's all type of macro data that that we believe is is um it could, can be super beneficial to the the you know the restaurant industry writ large and and again we're we want to be able to provide kind of this open access to data and some of it might have to have to be anonymized you know um, but again like the the current model does not support that they're so restricted with their data because they just mm-hmm. they want to monetize it in in every way they can so yes like I think that's a good comparison to even though I don't know much about fitness bi it sounds very similar to kind of how we've always always thought of data and being able to you know arm restaurant tours with, yeah. with it. In, in the um, in the hotel space there's something called Smiths and what they do is they will go down to uh, the street level and if there's uh, you know four hotels on each there's a hotel on each corner and they will tell they will go back every week and they'll say this was the average uh, average daily rate. This was the vacancy rates. Yeah. Um, and, and they've got some other KPIs and they're actually able to, to get it down to that, that four corners. And if you look at hotels.com and you go on there, there's gotta be a little bit of like, let's just use the word price fixing because I can't come up with anything better. Right. But you know, like you can it's tell top like price the, fixing is top of mind right now. <laughs> there's like, there's no way that all these hotels know that there's some conference that's in town and like here's what the supply demand is going to look like there's somebody feeding that information to them and i'm sure it's probably hotels.com and expedia and they're basically like rising the floor because they're getting a percentage of that rate and they kind of know that okay here's like the clearing price where you should listen to us and we'll kind of price your rooms for you because it could go like from like 129 up to like 499 for like a you know the garden inn yeah, like yeah. 28th and 6th. Like, there's no way, there's no way that someone is sitting at the front desk or the general manager say, like, I think it's 499 tonight. Like, I just, I just feel like, you know, I got off the subway. There's a lot of people here, right? <laughs> so somebody feeding them this intelligence. When you take a look at what you're trying to do with Sesame, though, are you, you basically saying, hey, look, there's certain types of foods that are trending right now. Here's where they're priced. Here, you know, you should be selling more, you know, rotisserie chicken, as an example. Or, you know, avocados, like anything with an avocado, you get an extra $3 for, uh, you know, what, what yeah. give me some examples. Yeah, no, I mean, look, that's, that. no, no, that's the exact implication. You know, like one of the ideas we always had, we, we haven't launched it yet, but it was something that was always compelling to us is, you know, when you go on Google and you do like Google flights, you know, and you're searching for flights and you, and a price pops up and then there's this like little spectrum that says, Hey, you're, you know, 60% above what this flight would normally go to, you know? So right, it's right. like, it's just a very, and even Amazon, you know, Amazon was always fairly good at, at kind of breaking down, like, what is the cost of this item per, per ounce? Or, you know, it just puts it in relative terms right. for the consumers to understand. So, so we always envision being able to offer that for the restaurateur. So let's say a, a sandwich concept that's serving, you know, a fried chicken sandwich, and they can see data to say, hey, our fried chicken sandwich is priced, you know, 15% below you know, the majority of restaurateurs that are serving similar, you know, fried chicken sandwiches, right? So they can get an understanding of their competitive set. You know, there's always cost plus pricing in restaurants. You know, you always want to make sure you're hitting your food cost, um, you know, targets, but but there's also competitive pricing, you know, what's going on in the environment and and the fragmentation of this industry 
is just so great that it's just it's impossible for a restaurant to really understand what's going on again in that macro environment without you know transparent data. Right. So you've got some really big players. Some of them public. Some of them you know, combined, but still have their separate brands. So you think that there's more competition, there's not, um, you know, so they're wielding a pretty big, you know, stick and there's a lot of scale that's required in a, in a delivery business and the marketing that goes in there and, you know, those Uber Eats commercials where I don't know who does that, but I would not pick that ad agency. However, you know, when you take a look at what you're doing as, as a startup company, it's saying I've got a lens on what's going to happen and what needs to happen. And these other companies are kind of focused on, you know, just driving their revenue growth. They're not thinking about what is, what are my customers, which are really the restaurants, right? They got two customers, they got the restaurants and they got the consumer, you know, where, where do you fit into that and how do you kind of stake out your lane? So it's a great question. And, you know, we think a lot about, um, you know, where the industry is. We, we, we certainly feel that it's, it's unsustainable, right? You know, like the current web two, um, you know, model of marketplaces is, it's just not sustainable. And the reason is, is because the, these guys have spent billions and billions of dollars acquiring, you know, through, you know, cost of acquisition, both supply and demand, and they right. need to return, you know, money on all, all that investment, um, which has been subsidized by Wall Street. And as you guys know, a lot of these companies have, haven't been able to turn a profit um, at all, you know, so they're losing a tremendous amount of money, just gaining market share, profit be damned. And, and in order to get a return on that, they have to be highly extractive, right? They have to extract value from either the merchant or the consumer. And that's what's happening. And it kind of ebbs and flows. They take more from the restaurant. They end up taking more from the consumer and, and, and they keep going. So how I'm thinking about this and what we're really excited about, I reference Web 2.0. With Web 3 now, there's, there's all this technology, you know, fundamentally like blockchain type technology that that allows businesses to do things that, that we might think of as like a cooperative, you know, like when we, when we first founded Sesame, the idea was what if we created a cooperative where all the merchants on the platform actually had a piece of the pot, they were actual, you know, shareholders. And, um, now we're just working on something the other day where this guy was thinking about doing a franchise mm -hmm. and it was, then, then we talked about doing a license and then we kind of came up as we we're in the car, dropped me off at the airport. I'm like, what you really want to do is you just want to create a, an old school co-op. And everyone's yeah. kind of bought in and they're all driving towards the same goals and, and you'll get your management fee out of it, which is basically your franchise fee. Yeah. But like ShopRite has like the largest purchasing, uh, like the distribution centers owned by the co-ops. Yeah, exactly. And look, there's, they're effective mainly because they, they result if, if they're created right. And, you know, properly there's, there's aligned incentives across all participants. Right. And in web, again, in web two, like all of the, the restaurants, the couriers, the consumers, the team, the restaurant team members, they're all contributing value to this network and all that value is being extracted and sent to wall street. So, so Sesame's ideation is really, you know, what if we created this kind of decentralized web three, you know, ecosystem where all of those same players actually had, a stake in the company, you know, and they became shareholders, you know, and well, that I want, I want to, I just want to reference one thing. Cause we talk about this in our Halo Academy. Um, a lot of companies that you're referencing, they're either technology companies or marketplaces. They're valued at multiples of revenue, right? They're not full because they don't have any EBITDA. And even if they had EBITDA, they'd still be valued at a multiple revenue. Yep. So what I want people to think about is in the health club industry or in other industries, if you're giving someone, a revenue stream that's a multi-year contract 
um, whether they're running your mission critical software, they're running your Salesforce. If Salesforce.com sells a $10 million account to, you know, um, you know, uh, Orify, um, and that value of their stock, it stays at like six times revenue. They just created $60 million of value, right? For their shareholders. Going back to your co-op idea is to say, hey, look, if I'm a customer of yours and you're basically arbitraging my contract, right? In the public markets, why don't you give me, you know, $10 million of the stock for me to sign up on this contract because you're going to arm me 40 million, right? Yeah. So people don't think about like the, the business models that are out there are being valued differently. Maybe it all comes down to earth at some point, but I doubt it in our lifetime. Um, so it's interesting to think about like, my, is my business model more valuable than your business model? Your business model doesn't exist unless I, I go on it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody said to me one time, they're like, I'm independently wealthy. I'm like, no, you're dependently wealthy <laughs> right? you, because you depend on your customers. You depend on the bank to take the money in. You pretend on, you, you depend on the police to keep you safe. Yeah. You know, like you know, no one's independently anything. So anyway, no, getting, getting back to where you were before yeah. though, you're setting up a co-op or sharing this data um, that might be aspirational, you know, cause I've been talking about this for years in the health club industry, like let's all take these brands, put them into like a royalty. You know, everyone's going to own a piece of the royalty or like in the movie industry, they're like, you know, they, they crowdsourced all the screens and then they created a company, national Cinemedia. Um, so could you set up a co-op? I mean, you set up a co-op with thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, no, no, that, there's definitely ways to do it. Um, we, you know, and you know, what's interesting is when we talk to, you know, our, our restaurant partners, you know, and we kind of, you know, proffer this idea of like, you know, them being a, a stakeholder. And there's different ways to slice this, you know, you know, to, to slice this, um, this pie, but, right. um, you know, with, with, um, you know, web three and blockchain, you know, like well, there, there are companies out there. There's, there's this great company called brain trust that I've been following. And it's, it's a true like use case, real life example of a web three marketplace that, that matches talent with companies. So it's in the talent space. And, you know, they've been doing phenomenally well uh, and their value proposition essentially is like, you know, kind of what we're doing, like companies, you can spend less on acquiring talent, you know, the talent can, you know, go to a place where um, not only can they find great companies, but they actually are rewarded and incentivized through, you know, kind of having a piece of this, this pie. And, and it's kind of incredible to see that things that had seemed, you know, more aspirational and like, you know, kind of altruistic are actually being done and they're, you know, it's kind of creating this, this incentive based flywheel that, that is working and they're competing just like we're competing against the, you know, DoorDashes of the world. They're going against, you know, Upworks and like fibers, you know, of the world. So tell, explain to me how that, the economics of that work, you're saying the, the, the contractor or the employee is getting a percentage of something that. So, so the way in Web three it works, it's it's uh, it's through tokenization, right? So you kind of create a you know a native token model, you know. Yeah. So so imagine we have it's th think like a loyalty system, right? Like everybody has loyalty systems or rewards right. programs, and so Sesame in theory, and we haven't done this yet. This these are all kind of just like ideas and and things that we're seeing in the industry. By the way, you know NFTs and like blockchain, web, all that stuff is starting to find its way into the you know restaurant space. I think you know across many industries. You know, as an example, Starbucks, you know, is and Shake Shack are launching loyalty programs. You know, um, oh. um, with NFTs and there's this um, 
uh, Gary Vaynerchuk launched this company called Flyfish, which is kind of the first NFT membership only restaurant. So it's it's kind of starting to you know pop into the. That's in- the one I heard of. Maybe maybe you told me about that one. Yeah, I may, maybe I had mentioned it, but but again, so there's this tokenization. So we kind of create this like loyalty system with Sesame, you know, coins and a consumer that places orders on Sesame or refer consumers, couriers that execute delivery under certain time standards, restaurants that promote Sesame to their you know, to, to their, you know, fan base, all of these behaviors that create more value in the network, they get rewarded by getting these, these points. Right. But the mm-hmm. difference between a traditional, you know, maybe loyalty point with like, you know, gold stars and like, you know, and, and red balloons, you know, this one is a, a liquid market, right. Um, because blockchain, you know, en- enables kind of that type of liquidity to, um, uh, to be created. So not only is it, have you know potential um, redeemable qualities within the network like benefits or access to certain features, but it also is a digital asset that, in theory, as this network grows and scales, it becomes more and more value. Mm-hmm. So, fast forward six months, twelve months from now, what do you think the consumer offering and the and the partner offering is to to sign up on on the Sesame platform and who is that either taking market share away from or who who are you leapfrogging? So um, it's a good question. You know, I, we're so currently just to, you know, for people listening, you know, we're, we're in a kind of a prototype mode. We've been in this like beta launch in Manhattan where we're currently, we have about 250 restaurants um, on the platform itself. We're, we're in a limited geography from 34th street down to Houston, east to west, but we've got a great range of just amazing restaurants, the whole, the whole spectrum from fast casual to full service, um, you know, just really, really great brands. And then I think in the next, and are they are you you're you're transferring the the transaction and making that user interface and more knowledgeable for the consumer are you actually handling the delivery as well yeah so we sesame itself does not do the actual logistics instead we partner with um you know fulfillment only company here in new york called relay who through our experience and again we're restaurant tours right so we've kind of battle tested all of these things we've been yeah. working with them for seven years and they are hands down the best executors of delivery, mainly because that's all they do. Um, so we, uh, we we have a partnership with them. So all the orders come in through Sesame. We inject them directly into the restaurant. So it's seamless operationally. We simultaneously send it to the to, to Relay to fulfill. And then we track all the times and the data, you know, so we know how quickly these things are being ordered. By the way, this is how good they are. In all of Manhattan, their average time from the time a, a courier goes to a restaurant and grabs the bag to handing it off to the consumer to the consumer at their door in their apartment is 12 minutes average. So, so I referenced this on, on our on our intro call the other day, but if we could do like a gambling of the sesame relay delivery guys and the under over is 12 minutes, and then you can place a bet on like when your friend gets their order and we'll blockchain the whole thing. Exactly. And then those guys will turn into like the next uh you know, uh, tour de France, uh, yeah. you know, delivery uh edition. Yeah, betting on the horses, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, um so, so, but where we see ourselves in, in the next, you know, three, six, nine months is, you know, we're starting to scale, you know, so we're starting to increase our geographic boundaries. Um, we expect to cover, you know, all of Manhattan and, and start to get into, you know, some of the boroughs. Again, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work, you know, just talking to great restaurants. So we've got a wait list of, you know, hundreds of restaurants um, to be, to get onto the platform, um, which is a great, you know, great sign. And, and then, you know, I expect us to, to really start to explore and you know execute 
some of these ideas of, you know, this kind of eat, we're calling it kind of eat to earn, you know, um, as like a loyalty system, but, but based on and, and predicated on this notion that all these other companies are extracting value from, from all participants. And there's a better system that can actually pass that value back to, you know, all those, all of those contributors. And, um, it might seem a little out there, but you know what, like, there's a lot of anti-conglomerate sentiment, you know, against sure. people like whether it's Instagram, Amazon, DoorDash, you know, people, people that, you know, feel like they're being taken advantage of and, you know, on both sides, like it's right, it, it, it sets the stage for disruption. And, um, I think DoorDash and those guys are, are starting to feel, you know, the pressure and the other, the other, you know, thing to note is that there's no way, like that's a competitive moat that we would have against the incumbents. Like there's no way DoorDash, Facebook, Amazon are just going to give up 50% of their company, you know, in favor of incentivizing all of the contributors of value. Right. They just can't do it. You know, they, they, they need to, they need to make a return on, on, on this, this, these massive investments. So, so it's something they really can't do. And as a nimble new startup that is passionate about really creating true sustainability for this industry that I think consumers really value. Um, we, we can really push, you know, push the boundaries. There's one thing I want to, um, give you a shout out on, and I want all the entrepreneurs on here to listen. When you talked about your growth strategy, you know, you said, I'm going to go into, you know, Houston to, to 34th street. Um, and then I'm going to go higher up, you know, and I'm going to cover Manhattan and I'm going to go to the boroughs. We have people come in with their ideas and they say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go to New York. Then I'm going to go to Boston. I'm going to go to Philly and I'm going to go to Miami. Then I'm going to go to Los Angeles. And it's like, the density in New York City, okay? And, and I was talking to a health club chain. This was like 15 years ago. And it's a, it's a prominent health club chain. And the guy who's the head of real estate development said, um, I'm going to go down to Florida. I think we can do like three or four clubs there. I said to him, bro, buy a Metro card and do not leave the subway system, okay? Yeah. Do not leave the subway system. There's plenty of density and just go find it right here where you've actually got brand equity, you got people, you got resources. Yeah. Like don't, don't leave, don't go to LAX. Don't go to JFK. Don't go to LaGuardia. Just stay on the subway grid. Um, so yeah, no, so to you, yeah. Do you saying like, Hey, I'm going to saturate New York. Like, that's, that's a great strategy. You people. know, I think part of that is, you know, our, like we're restaurant tours, right. And we, we have a great, you know, at Orify brands, we have about 120, you know, plus restaurants across six different brands. And we've, we did exactly that. We established great brand, you know, recognition and presence and affinity in like a place like Manhattan. And we did it historically. We experimented with going to DC and going to Florida and going to Chicago. And we realized what you're saying, right? It's so hard to expand too quickly to get ahead of the curve and try to open up other markets when, you know, all the, you know, the, 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 the most value really comes from just being smart about where you are and which, you know, understanding your market, understanding more about your consumers. And that's what yeah, I think a lot. Yeah. A lot of people think that, um, I know we're going a little bit over time, Dave, but a lot of people think that if I go to a new city, that's like a, like a badge of honor, you know, like I'm, I'm in the military, like I got, I'm in 12 cities. Okay. We were working with this one group who took in a lot of venture capital and their biggest market was New York city. And I never got any direct mail from them. I never got an email from them. So when I met them, they're like, yeah, we're in like 30 cities. And I'm like, how do I not know who you are? I live on 29th Street and 5th yeah, right. Avenue. You yeah. guys have never marketed to me or you never marketed to anyone in the thousand people that live in my building because I would have seen something there. So I think people get excited about expansion and they forgot that there's all this marketing that you could do to like own the market that you're currently in. Just, just stay where you are and then yeah, stay, go, grow and like you, you have nowhere else to go. 
you know, that's what. Oh you- yeah, we have so much work to do in New York. I mean, no, we we have so much work to do just in a couple of blocks, you know. Right, uh, right. And yeah, that's uh, good. I think I think your point is um, is well received, and you know, kind of how we've been thinking about it. But um, but yeah, look, we're excited, and um, you know, look, this is an audacious goal. You know, I never really woke up as a restaurateur thinking, oh, let's let's get into digital technology and challenge some of the biggest publicly traded companies in the world. But you know, when you love an industry, when you're passionate about you know, what you do and, you know, the people that are in this industry, um, you know, it's, it's worth fighting for. And, you know, I felt like, um, as well as my partners, like we were kind of backed in a corner and we just felt like, you know, if no one else is going to do it, who best, who better to do it than, you know, restaurateurs that have, you know, devoted their, their professional lives to, to, to creating a better industry. So. Got it. So last question, um, you know, as you go through this entrepreneurial journey, you know, and you've been in places that are more stable and more predictable, uh, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you know what you're going to do when you're an entrepreneur, you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, so do you have any quotes or, you know, uh, morganisms that people say like, Hey, you know, uh, he's always saying this, or he's kind of keeping us on path or, you know, keep, put, put us in check. I was, or, you, I was hoping by the end of this podcast, you guys were going to give me the uh, roadmap to what to do as an entrepreneur. That's, that's, yeah, that's don't leave the subway line <laughs> is, is like, but you're going to call this the no, subway right. You know, so I, I was a lacrosse player my my whole uh, my whole life. I played a deep uh, Division One up at Cornell, um, and my high school lacrosse coach, who was a maniac, an absolute maniac, um, you know, used to always say, "Don't worry about what you can't control." And he used to just like hammer that into us, and and to this day, like that still resonates with me. And I just you know whether I'm with my with my boys who you know are eleven and nine, or like you know you're encountering all the craziness of personal life fitness, you know, and of course, entrepreneurial endeavors. Like I just always try to remind myself, Josh, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on the things that are in your control and establish, you know, the routines and the discipline to, to get better at, at, at those, you know, minor things that again, within our, are within our purview. So the, yeah. that, that's something that I always find myself kind of gravitating towards when things get rough. Yeah, that's great. So somebody said to me one time that I control the things I can't control and the more things I can't control, it kind of like I control even more. So it's like, once you master that part, that's like, oh, give, give me more and I'll figure out a way to kind of normalize these things where they don't create chaos. So, but don't, don't go into the M&A business because there's way more things out of, out of our control than that's a whole podcast. You know, in and of honestly, like just to bring it back, like I, we haven't talked about fitness in general, but like in, in my personal life, you know, fitness as, you know, I was an athlete, I just mentioned, you know, fitness and overall health and wellness has always been, you know, a big part of my life. And, and then one of the things I think I love about it so much is that there's not many things in life where you can control literally a hundred percent of the outcome other than the things that you do for yourself, like how you take care of your body, the things you, the exercises you choose to do, or, you know, the yoga, you know, so, so I've always loved health and fitness mainly because, you know, I just know that it's all, it's in my control. There's no one else I can blame in Sesame. You know, I got to raise money. You're right. It's like, it, it involves other people. I can do my best, but ultimately it's a, you know, it's a, it's a dual transaction where I have to get other people to commit. But, but, um, every day I get up and, you know, I, I go to the gym and I, I think about what I eat and I, you know, try to do things like meditation because I just know they're in my control. And hopefully mm-hmm. if I do it well, it puts me in a better mindset and a mental space to, to tackle all of the other challenges that I might not have so much control over, you know? Yeah. So, so in closing, because I said this to somebody the other day, an entrepreneur who's been struggling, you know, I said, how many days do you wake up in the morning? And you're like thinking about the stress ahead of you, or do you think about the opportunity ahead of you? You know, if you wake up and you're just like thinking about the stress, you can't really 
divert that energy into like, how am I going to fix it? Like you fix it by growing out of the stress. You don't fix it by like focusing on the stress. So yeah, I'm with you, man. All right, let's get everybody into the gym. Let's get everyone ordering on Sesame and uh, don't leave the five boroughs. If you want to be on Sesame for the next couple of years, because that's the right business model. We're sticking with it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Awesome. Good to see you. And uh, look forward to, to catching up in person and, uh, you know, build this business uh, methodically. And that's, that's who wins. Awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.